If you would, please take out your Bibles and open them up to the book of Daniel, chapter 7, this morning, where we resume our study. Actually, we are at a new portion of the book of Daniel. Having finished the narrative section last Sunday as we brought chapter 6 to a close, this morning we begin the prophetic section of Daniel, which will carry us to the end of the book. So this is an important part of the corpus of Scripture, not that any Scripture is less important, but we need to understand that this is going to be in some ways drawing on themes, and we'll bring these back out, drawing on themes that we saw in the narrative, but in another way, very radically different from the narrative, as Daniel is not dealing in any sort of linear chronological storytelling here. He is dealing with a, a revelation of God's promise and covenant throughout the generations of mankind and how that works to point us to Jesus and to the Messianic kingdom and a whole host of other things. Now, of course, Daniel, like the book of Revelation, has, has a lot of different people who understand it differently. And there are a lot of different opinions about what means what and who means who and where this goes and where that goes. I don't intend to discuss all of them with you. From time to time, I will bring up differing opinions and how some people see it here and some people see it here. But my goal is not for us, for this to be an academic exercise where I give you all the information on Daniel that I have. Our goal here is to get at the heart of the Word of God so that we can better understand His truth, so that we can be transformed more into His image, and so that we can live this out in a world that actually hasn't changed much since the time of Daniel. And so this morning, we find ourselves here at the very, on the cusp, we're at the very precipice of the deep dive that Daniel is getting into as he sees the four beasts, the vision of the four beasts is where we are. And we're going to keep chapter 7, we're going to go through it in segments so we have plenty of time to explore what Daniel is talking about. And some of these visions correspond to earlier parts of Daniel, we'll make that clear when that's the case. And some of, so some of them are, are kind of expanding on what we've already found out in Daniel, and some of them are very much looking to the future, to the coming of Christ. And so we, and when I was in seminary, my, my, my Old Testament professor and Hebrew teacher, he said that he took some classes at a, at a Hebrew seminary just to kind of deepen his understanding of Aramaic and Hebrew and he said just at a lunch one time, one of his professors, who was an Orthodox Jewish man, said, I don't know how anybody reads the book of Daniel and doesn't see that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Now, he wouldn't say that publicly because he held a position at an institution that more or less actively denied that Jesus was the Messiah. But on a personal level, this was where he was. Daniel is a powerful book and speaks very boldly to where we are in our time. So without further delay, let's turn our attention now to Daniel. Daniel chapter 7, verses 1 to 8. Beloved, this is God's infallible, inerrant word. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream, and he told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard. 
with four wings of a bird on its back. Then the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. And after this, in the night visions, and behold, or after this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little horn, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like, like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. So ends the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing. Please now pray with me. Father, thank you. Thank you for this very complex word that, that there is truth here and there is hope here. Even as we look at it, may we not despair. But may, wait, may we remember that the, the God who wrote it down is the God who reigns. May we find hope in you and be transformed, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. What is war? When we think about war, something we've all been very acquainted with. Well, technically, what war is, is armed conflict between two or more peoples or nations. So if you want a technical definition of war, it's armed conflict, armed conflict between two or more peoples or nations. So I'm going back a ways, but in 2003... The New York Times actually ran a story where a survey had been done. They surveyed the previous 3,400 years. So they did a survey of the previous 3,400 years to determine how much time humanity, and this is globally speaking, how much time humanity had been at war and how much time humanity had been at peace. Out of the previous 3,400 years, they found that 268 of those years were at peace. I'm no mathematician, but I can tell you that's a whopping 8% of the recorded history at the time had been at peace. That's pretty astounding. That's pretty astounding when you think of out of 3,400 years, less than 270 of them, people had known peace. And of course, ask yourself, in your lifetime, not some of you have been in war, but most of us, at least I can, in my lifetime, I can remember the wars that have happened. Either I've read about them or I remember them happening. Well, in Psalm 2, when the psalmist says the nations rage, he wasn't lying. He was not exaggerating. The nations, in fact, do rage, and and recorded secular history confirms that the nations rage. They're war-prone. We've been doing it for all of recorded history. Do you know that as of 2003 now, so this number is going to be a bit old, out of 2003, how many people, and this is an estimate, of course, so take it as you will, how many people this survey estimated had died in wars? A one billion people. Now you think, well, I thought it'd be more than that, but think of that, that's a thousand million people died in war, have died in war, have been killed over armed conflict of some sort or, or another. Well, that, that's sobering. That's chilling for us to consider the reality of what is in the heart of man. War, anger, rage, sin, death. Why is the gospel so important? Because we are watching the nations rage around us right now. And what does scripture tell us? More war is not going to end it because where, where there's more war, there'll be more war. We often think of peace having to be won through conflict, and, and so often it does. But then more peace has to be won, and more peace has to be won. What is the hope to mitigate war and death and evil and rage and anger? 
It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not beating you to death. It's saying, hey, maybe we need a heart change. Maybe, maybe beating each other to death is not going to do it. Maybe the Taliban needs a heart change. Maybe the Taliban needs to be won by the God. Not maybe, they do. Because they're not going to stop. Things like ISIS and Taliban and, and all the evil in the world is not going to stop until there is a fundamental heart change. And so we say, God sent his son who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And what happens when we become the righteousness of God? A fundamental heart change happens. And so if we really want evil to stop, how can we get the gospel? How can we preach the gospel? How can we proclaim the gospel? How can we support people in those areas who are actually doing that? Daniel 7 begins a new section of Daniel. It's laying out the prophetic visions of God that were given to Daniel specifically by God. And here's what we need to understand, and I want to, I want to say this right on the front end. The goal of this portion of Daniel is not to give us a strict chronology of events. That's not its purpose. It's not its goal. It's to explain God's purpose in human history, to remind us of God's promises throughout human history, and ask us and to tell us when we find ourselves between in the vice being clamped down, what is true? Well, this moment is painful, it hurts, I'm in hard circumstances, but God is reigning and has a plan and has a purpose. Now, I will tell you, there are sometimes I really struggle to earnestly have joy in that truth. Not that I struggle to believe it. When I'm hurting, I struggle to have joy in that truth, and I'm sure you do too. And let me say on the front end, it's okay, but let's not stay there. Let's ask the Spirit, how can we have more joy in the fact that God reigns and wins even when it feels like we're losing? Is Daniel predicting history in some regard? Well, yeah, he is. I mean, we can't get around that. He actually, actually does predict some history really accurately. So accurately, in fact, when we first started this book, that's why I told you people often go for a late date of Daniel because there's no way he could have been as accurate as he has been, as so they say. Well, if God who knows all things is the inspirer of this book, then of course it can be that accurate because God does know all things. We also do well not to always seek a one-to-one -one comparison with the images and historical events. We can get in the weeds by doing that. Are there going to be some really super one-to-one -one comparisons? Yeah, but we don't always, that shouldn't be our go-to. The idea is to understand, or given the nature of apocalyptic literature, which is what this portion of Daniel is, apocalyptic literature is a certain style of literature that uses symbols and imagery usually that are very wild, to tell a story of truth. That's the type of literature that Revelation is. That's why you see dragons and you see all sorts of funky beasts like we see here this morning. Things that are like a lion, like an eagle, like a bear, like a leopard with four heads, and you know all these things, they're wild, they're crazy. They're meant to grab our attention. They're meant to tell us something radical is happening. And so we do well to always understand the nature of the literature that we're in. So when we look at Daniel, the importance is not figuring out every little detail or what every little detail symbolizes. Details matter, and there are some detailed symbolism in here. But we need to discern what is the overall message of Daniel. What is the overall message? What is he trying to tell me? What is it that I can sink my teeth into that maybe if I don't understand all the tin horns and the little horns and all this stuff, what is the thing that I can sink my teeth into that gives me hope when I read Daniel? Not to ferret out every detail, 
but to understand the purpose. The same purpose of revelation by John in the New Testament, that God is giving his people hope in the face of what seems insurmountable. That God is giving his people hope in the face of what seems insurmountable. And Daniel is not promising, oh, because God reigns, you're going to have a good life, your best life now. You're not going to struggle. You're not going to hurt. No, you will struggle. Some of us in this room may even die for the purposes of God. That doesn't lessen the truth of God's eternal glory, his eternal truth, and the fact that he does not lead us to destruction. Death of this body is not the worst thing that can happen to us, beloved of God. I've said this a million times. Apathy, indifference toward God is one of the worst things that can happen to us. Daniel says, yes, the nations rage, but Yahweh is in control, and he will bring his righteous judgment to pass. So with those thoughts in mind, I've got a very simple point this morning, and it's this. The kingdom of man wages war with God. The kingdom of man wages war with God. We think about that. I'm going to have one more historical illusion here. Think about names like this. Joseph Stalin, out of should ring a bell, uh, led Russia, was awful, killed millions of people. Think of Idi Amin in Africa, horrible, barbaric. I won't even get into some of the stuff that he did. One of the books that I recommended, By Their Blood, goes into specifics about people who suffered under Idi Amin, and it is grotesque. It's awful. Think about the Taliban. We, when we look at this, there is, even in Stalin, in Idi Amin, and certainly in the Taliban, beloved, we can get so caught up into the strategic war uh, motivation that we look past, there is spiritual motivation in each of these. Stalin was no friend to Christianity. Idi Amin was no friend to Christianity. The Taliban, sure, is no friend to Christianity. And what, what is the purpose? What is the goal? We look at these from a human perspective, and we think of the atrocities. Stalin, I mean, just one instance, he told the peasant farmers, I need this much grain from you every year, and there was no way they could get that much grain, and he knew it. And he starved them to death, millions of them, knowingly doing it. Why? Because he had a bad day at the office? No, because something evil worked in him. Idi Amin, the tortures of people who were in the wrong tribe and the things he did are unspeakable. Why? Just because he was not a nice guy? Because evil was in him. The Taliban, beloved, I don't know how much you know about them, but if you want to do a deep dive and study their mentality of how they rule, it's not nice. It is not pretty. It is grotesque. It is evil. Why? Because there's an evil at work in them. And so when we look at this, when the nations rage, why? Well, because there's sin in the world, for sure, the primary reason. But because there is a spirit of darkness that is working against the people of God that has many faces and reasserts itself again and again and again and again. That's kind of what we're looking at here. And so this morning, the primary focus is on a very dark thing. It's on beasts and violence. These first eight verses are primarily about beasts and the violence that they do. But there's a subtle thread running through here that if you catch it, it's like, it's that, that, that bright light, but wait, but wait, there's more, but wait, there's more. It's that Yahweh is Lord over all of human history. Yahweh is Lord over all of human history. When you read Daniel 7, today after church, I'd encourage you, go back and read Daniel 2, and you're going to find somehow these two, two chapters, they correspond to each other. In Daniel 2, of course, you have the idol, the dream of the idol given to Nebuchadnezzar with the, the head, the chest, uh, the midsection and legs, and then the feet. 
And you had the stone that came down and crushed them, and we understood that to be Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. And, and what was the simple message? It's all these kingdoms fade away, and the kingdom of God is forever. When you're looking at Daniel 7 on the outset, what is he doing? He's kind of repainting that vision with different imagery to tell the same story. All these kingdoms come and go, but the kingdom of God stands forever. He's over all these kingdoms. That's the hope we have. In verse 1, Daniel gives us a very important piece of context. He says, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and the visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Now remember now, the last chapter, chapter 6, ended, so, so Daniel's prospered during the reign of Darius. That was during Darius' reign. And the reign of Siri, or Cyrus the Persian. We, now we're jumping back to Belshazzar. This would probably date this particular vision to about 553, 552 B.C., somewhere in there. Really, probably anywhere from 553 to 550 B.C., but somewhere in there this date. So what is this telling us right off the bat? Well, this is not chronological. This doesn't come in any chronological order. If it did, this vision would have fallen somewhere between Daniel 4 and 5, but it doesn't. It comes here. And so this is where the Hebrews are different, and I've said this before, but it bears repeating. Hebrews did not think like the Greeks. So the Greek Septuagint comes along, it rearranges the Hebrew Old Testament in a more linear chronological fashion. That's not how Hebrews thought. Hebrews thought, how do we best tell the story? Now exactly why Daniel waits till this chapter to relate this vision, we don't know. But I do know that the way that he's doing it is weaving a story together to not tell us strict history, but to give us a truth, a central truth that we need to come back to again and again. That if we're in covenant with God, he's in control. If we're not in covenant with God, he's in control. But the covenant people can trust in the good sovereignty of God. So that's why it's arranged this way. When we read this, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote the dream down and told the sum of the matter. Why is he telling us this? Well, he's making sure we understand these are not just... He didn't eat some bad pork the night before and have a weird dream. He's trying to help us understand this is not of me. This is divine. This is coming from the God. This is coming from God. This is direct revelation from God. And so why would he write them down? Because it's coming from God. This is for not just Daniel. This is for the people of God to know. For those of us who are past some of these events, we, we can look back in history and see how it was fulfilled. What does it do for us? It reminds us. God is in control. Look how he ordered human history so accurately and gave it to his prophets. So this is written down for us, not to be scared by it, not to argue over it, not to always try these novel uh, interpretations, but to be encouraged, to be encouraged by old truth that again and again comes back around to our hearts. So when we read them, we need to be sobered by them, but we also need to see the hope of Yahweh. We also need to see the hope of Yahweh. He goes on, Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of the heavens were stirring up the great sea. So we have these four winds. What does that mean? Well, just winds from every direction. You have the four compass points. So just think wind from all around, a strong wind coming from all over the earth. And we know by reading a bit further, the intention of this wind is to bring chaos into the earth, to introduce something chaotic and evil into the world. So these four winds are whipping up, and they are the, the, the harbinger, the foreshadow of a hard, some hard times that are coming up. 
hard times and evil periods where things are going to be difficult. When he uses the great sea, this is important. In Hebrew thought, the sea was the very heart thing, the very picture of chaos. Why? Because you have waves tossing things around. And, and think about Hebrews who lived on lakes where storms would come in and just whip up everything. And, and God only knows what's down there in the bottom of those things. They thought the Leviathan was down there. And so when you see this great sea here, don't try to think about a particular sea that was in the area. Think about Daniel as saying, complete chaos, utter chaos. The four winds are whipping up everything, and they're whipping up the world into chaos. Spirit, and these things are spiritually powered. It's a picture of earth with chaotic and evil and, and problems and hardship. So far, you're like, well, this is depressing. No, it's sobering. But he's going to say some things in here that give us reason to have hope. So in these first few verses, and of course on down, what is Daniel really doing for us? Well, he's given us the arc of human history. He's given us the arc of human history of saying, this is how it's been. And we can look back before Daniel and see that would be exactly right. This is how it's been. This is how it is. It's what Daniel's experiencing right now. Just think Daniel experienced a change from Babylon to Persia. So he saw kingdoms rise and fall. But he's also telling us, this is how it will be. And of course, in the New Testament, we understand until Jesus comes back. So he's showing us the arc of human history. He immediately says, four great beasts came up out of the sea. So think of these four great beasts from this chaotic, where the winds have stirred up the world, the world is evil and chaotic, where the world is in a state of evilness and chaos. And he says these four beasts, they come up out of this. They rise up from the world. These are people of the world, kingdoms of the world. So we want to keep that clear. Four great beasts rise up different from one another. And so then he gives us the first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. So then as I looked, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man and the mind of a man was given to it. So notice right off the bat, this first, be uh, this first beast, he uses the comparative, it was like. It was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Now, when we think about that, Again, we're in apocalyptic literature. Why does he use that word like? Because he, he doesn't know exactly what it is he's looking at, so he's trying to convey to you and me, this is the, mo this is the best thing I can compare it to for you. This is kind of what it's like. Um, so we understand that now he's in the position of trying to make it understandable for us who are reading this. Because what he's looking at is dazzling, it's baffling, it's terrifying even. We know that from later on in the chapter. So it's like a lion and an eagle. He puts those two together. Why? Well, because they're both kingly and fierce. Lions, you know, he just had, or, or uh, the previous chapter, he came face to face with lions. And eagles, these two creatures are regal. The eagles rule the air. The, the lions rule the desert and the jungle. They're fierce. They're kingly. There's no doubt that when Daniel is looking at this, and we know that this is a, a comparison uh, of nations, because he'll, he'll say that early or later on in the, that we're looking at kings and kingdoms. And so when we look at this first one, our most natural thought would be he's describing Babylon. He's looking at Babylon as a, as a city who was, or as a nation who was kingly, who was fierce, who, 
who was able to control. And then he, he goes a step further with this beast, though. He, this beast goes through somewhat of a transformation. Then I looked, and its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. Now, this is mysterious here. There are some, there are some, some who would say what Daniel is describing was the fall and restoration of Nebuchadnezzar. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar was made to crawl around like a beast. It even said he, his hair grew as eagle's feathers, and that eventually God restored him to his humanity. Could that be what Daniel is referencing? Sure, that could be it. That could be one way to understand it. Another way is to say that it went from something more animal to more human. Was there some humanity late in the empire in Babylon because of Daniel's influence by the power of the Holy Spirit? Probably, especially the way he was able to affect kings. That could be in view. But either way, either how you understand either one of those doesn't affect the overall translation or the understanding, rather, that this was a powerful beast who came to destroy, who came to rule, who came to oppress, and it most likely points us to Babylon. But you cannot read this and miss this. It was lifted from the ground, or then I saw that its wings were plucked off. It was lifted from the ground, made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of man was given to it. Do you see what this beast is? He, he, he finds himself, it finds itself in the passive place. Things were done to it beyond its control, things that it had no control over. So what is Daniel telling us very subtly? As powerful as it is, this beast is still under the power of something else that can do things to it, whether it wants it to or not. So your first note in apocalyptic Daniel of hope, ah, so Babylon is not sovereign. There's something sovereign over it, all right? And that's important. We need to, that's, that's encouraging. The second beast, he goes on. And behold, another beast, the second one, like a bear, raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. What do you think of a bear? I think of a grizzly bear most naturally. Those things are fierce. They're ferocious. And I remember reading in Lewis and Clark's uh, uh, Undaunted Courage about Lewis and Clark expedition where one time they came confronted with a grizzly bear and they shot it eight times, and it kept coming. So when you think of a bear, don't think of a little cuddly little baby black bear. What he's looking at is, he says it's like a bear. So again, you've got the comparative like. Something fierce like a bear. I don't know what it is. It's kind of like a bear. This thing is coming for blood. It's coming to kill and destroy and crush. That's what he's picturing here. So a ferocious beast. When he says it's raised up on one side, it's interesting the way the Aramaic reads here because it could imply a few different things. Is he just up on one side like taking a break? Well, I doubt it, not given the rest of the text. Is he palsied on one side and walking with a limp? No, that definitely is not it. What it seems to indicate, as best I could understand it, and a few commentators agree with this, is that by saying it's raised up on one side, it's raised up to pounce. It's getting ready to pounce, which to me accords well with the fact that this beast has three ribs in its mouth. And sometimes people want to say, oh, are the three ribs, or is that uh, Assyria, Babylon, and me? No, no, just don't go there with that. Could the three ribs mean something? Yeah. Is it evident from the text? No. And anything we'd ever say would be speculative. What do the fact that he has three ribs in his mouth mean? That he's an eating machine. That he is told to rise and devour while he still has food in his mouth. 
That means he's got an insatiable appetite for death and destruction and that he's not going to stop. So we see this, and who could this be? Well, most likely Medo-Persia. Given history, the way things worked out, if we accept that the first beast was Babylon, we can accept that this one was Medo-Persia. And again, where do we see? What do we see? Imperative command, that is express command, rise and devour much flesh. What does that tell you? Well, it sounds like a command to kill, but what else does it tell you? It tells us that this thing does not work on its own initiative. It is under the command of something else. In human history, this thing had a purpose. This thing had a purpose that went beyond itself. In a a positive way, you and I, we have purpose that goes beyond ourselves, you see. We're under the control of something sovereign, just as this thing was. The third beast, he says another like a leopard in verse 6, with four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. Now, when you think of the animal kingdom, you think of a leopard. Leopards are, are, are apex predators in the wild, in the desert, especially uh, in places where other big cats are. What's unique about leopards is their ability to run fast. They're the speediest little creatures, but also they're very, very, very cunning. They're clever. They know how to trick prey into being caught. And so when you have this beast like a leopard, you're talking about somebody who's very fast. Oh, and by the way, we're going to add wings to its back to make it even faster. So it's faster than fast. So now it's faster than faster than faster than fast. In other words, everything it chases will succumb to it. (laughs) They're not going to get away. It's too fast. You add this, and you look at this. It's clever. It's got four heads now, and this is important. Just like the four winds, every direction, this leopard can see in every direction. And so the, the vision that Daniel's looking at almost, and I'm not saying this beast is omnipotent, almost has a sense to where it sees all, all the time because it can see in every direction simultaneously. And it can go really, really fast. And it has wings. And it's very clever. You're looking at something that feels like just hopeless against. And because I think that you've got a symbol of Greece here, I don't know how much you know about Alexander the Great, but his enemies were hopeless. And I'm I'm, I'm trying to be funny. He conquered the world. (laughs) He conquered the world by the time of his early 30s. He did in a matter of a decade or less or somewhere in there what it took some empires 300 years to do. It is very easy for me to see how Daniel is getting a glimpse of Alexander the Great and the Greek Empire that blew through the known world and conquered it. Of course, then Alexander the Great died. Who knows what he would have done had he not died so early on in his life. But did you notice, did you notice again, there's that subtle statement that we latch on to as believers, and dominion was given to it. This, this beast, no matter how clever, how fast, how strong, how swift it is, beloved, it can't derive its own authority. It has to derive authority from another. So if we're looking at Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece, we're, we're, if you've done any historical study, you're seeing <laughs> nations that just ruled and crushed. 
And you're saying at the end of the day, they come to nothing because they're not their own. They are owned by another. The fourth beast, and this one, all the three are, are radical, and of course they, they toy with the imagination. This fourth one is the one we really pay attention to. Not that we don't pay attention to the others, but this should really catch our, catch our attention. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the other beasts before it, and it had ten horns. Now, when you read about the fourth beast, the first thing you notice, or at least you should, I'm going to point it out to you, is that when you have read about the first three, it was like, it was like, it was like. This one is not like anything. There's nothing that Daniel says it was like this. He immediately launches into terrifying, I, I, behold. In other words, when it says like this, after this I saw in the night visions, and behold I saw, or, or behold, it's like, and look, he's, he's kind of inviting us, the way the, the way the language reads, he's inviting us, look with me now at this thing, this beast he calls it, but it's terrifying, it's dreadful, it's exceedingly strong. He says uh, later on in the verse that it's different from all the others, that it's more horrible. This thing is not like a bear. It's not like a lion. It's not like a leopard. It's something totally different, something completely opposite, something completely more terrifying. Historically, people have associated this with Rome, and I tend to buy that, but I wanna, I'm going to give a caveat here in a minute. I want to come back around to that. But it seems to jive with history but there's something more going on here that I'll come back around to here in just a minute. But when we look at the, the description, terrifying, dreadful, exceedingly strong, great iron teeth, devoured, broken pieces, stamped what was left with its feet, that it was different from all the other beasts that were before it, it's trying to say, be sobered by this. Let your attention be grabbed by this. This is an important. And what Daniel, I think, there's a subtle... This is Brad's translation of how he describes it. You can't imagine how awful this is. As he's looking at it, he's conveying this reality that you can't imagine. It's different from anything. It's not like anything. It's awful. It only works destruction, Daniel is telling us. It's made to destroy and it does it so well. He describes it with ten horns. Now, we're going to come back around to that here in just a minute and more next week, God willing. But in this particular instance, we can understand the ten horns right now. This will unfold and we'll, we'll explore it. We'll go deeper because there's layers to this. What is he telling us about those ten horns? Well, ten is a, is a number of perfection and the horn is a symbol of strength. That this thing is... I'm going to put the word perfect in quotes because nothing is perfect but God... This beast is perfect in power. It is a killing machine. It's like you can't, you can't rival the strength of this thing because it's too powerful. It's perfectly powerful and perfectly strong. Now, let's kind of, that was the microscopic view. Let's take a telescopic view of this and back up from it. I said a while ago it most readily corresponds with Rome, but I have a caveat. Because I don't think that this beast only describes Rome. And here's why. When you look at this 
thing, and he's giving you, it's perfectly strong. It's like nothing you've ever seen before. It devours, it chews, it spits up, it doesn't quit. It's got the ten horns. He's looking at something that Rome was an iteration of, but merely an iteration. But he's looking at the power and the empire and the world system of man that comes against God and his people again and again and again and again. So this is where one of those places when I tell you, don't limit it to a one-to-one comparison. Let us take a step back and say, Daniel is looking at something cosmic right here. Not just Rome, because the lion came and went, the bear came and went, the leopard came and went. This thing came, and it hasn't gone yet. In fact, it won't go until the Ancient of Days comes to fight it. And so when we look at this, we're not looking at merely Rome. We're looking at something that's so much bigger than the Roman Empire. It's the kingdom and empire of evil that sets itself against the people of God again and again and again. So in other words, you could make application of this to uh, Nazi Germany, to other places where destruction and, 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 you know, Soviet Russia under Stalin and other leaders like that, that those things become an iteration of this kingdom that is made to destroy and made to stamp out all that is true, beautiful, righteous, and good. And so in this first opening section of Daniel, let us consider the fact that he has something much more expansive than just the Roman Empire in mind. Could, is Roman iteration? I just want to make sure you understand. Yeah. Understand it that Rome is very much a symbol of this power, but that's not all it is. It's bigger than Rome. He rounds this paragraph off with verse 8 I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little horn, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like a man and a mouth speaking great things. You know, sometimes when you're studying deep things, you get opportunities to laugh at some of the ideas that are put out. I'm not trying to be irreverent, but some people who, because it's a little horn, try to associate the little horn with short dictators in human history. <laughs> you can laugh, it's funny. When you start reading the different dictators who are the, who are the little horn, you're like, I'm seeing a pattern here. And they throw out names like Napoleon and other, other people who just were historically notably short. <laughs> um, I think that misses the point. Um, I, I think that misses the point of what's going on here. So as he's considering these horns, one of the things that we find out about this little horn, this little one, this one, why is it little? Well, it means it's not as big as the others, but it also, what does it do? When it's little, Daniel catches in, oh, this one stands out. There's something different about this one. This one has the appearance of being weak, the appearance of being small, the appearance of maybe being insignificant. And then what does it do? The three horns around it just uproots them. It, it shows its power. He's the dominant one. Yeah, he's like, yeah, I may be little, but I'm not weak. When we look at this, of course, we're thinking about the horns and probably representative of different kings through history, and trying to put names on these kings is going to lead you to a dead end. That's not the point. It's not trying to name the kings from the horns. It's trying to recognize the focus here is not on the other horns. It's on the little one. It's on the little horn. That's where we want to... So let all the other stuff just be what it is, and let's hone in there. What is this little horn? Well, when we look at it, so often the questions by commentators, this is the same question almost every time. Who is he? Who is he? And there's all kinds of 
men that people try to, emperors and leaders, they try to associate his, was it Antiochus or, or was he Julius Caesar or, or was he, I mean, you can't imagine how many different names have been thrown out there. I won't even try to run through even some of them. But let me tell you, beloved, that's the wrong question. Trying to figure out who he was in history is not helpful in terms of how we understand the little horn. The question that we should be asking is not, who is he? The question we should be asking is, what is he? What is he? Why is he important? Why does Daniel focus on him? When we look at him and we see the description, and behold, in this horn, this is not given to any other horn, just this one. And behold, in this horn were eyes like a man, kind of takes us back to the first beast, so you've got this human-like feature, eyes like a man, and a mouth speaking great things. Now, some of you may have a translation that says speaking arrogantly. That gets at the heart of what he's trying to say. So great things, great is not moral in nature. It's arrogant. It's big things. He's little. He speaks big things. So there's a contrast here. He's little, but he speaks big things. He speaks arrogantly. His bark is big, but apparently he has an equal bite. So he's got a big bark. And so when we look at this man, we look at the arrogant things that he's speaking. And beloved, I think we're looking, I'm convinced we're looking at the spirit of the Antichrist in one working destruction. One working destruction in his own day, one who will continue to work destruction in the earth as we await the consummation of the kingdom. Now, of course, and I'm going to get to this, the cross has implications for satanic power. And I want to make sure I address that when we get there. But what we're looking at is the spirit of an antichrist indwelling this little horn who is able to bark big because he's got a powerful spirit in him. I referenced Psalm 2 earlier. I want to read to you from Psalm 2, looking at verses 2 and 3. In Psalm 2, verse 2, the kings of the earth set themselves... And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. But then I'm going to read further. How does, how does the psalmist answer this? He who sits in, heaven, in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Daniel is giving us a sense of what's going on in Psalm 2. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cord from us. We are looking at the true enemy of God's people right here in the little horn. And of course, this is gonna, these, these, these visions are going to just continue to cycle through. And so this is just the beginning. But beloved, we have a battle set before us I said this last week. I'm going to say it again. You and I, we wrestle with spiritual power. We wrestle with spiritual power. When we think about our, our battle, the battle before us is not the person in front of you. It's the spirit behind that person. And so it makes how we wage war look different than the world the nation's rage, the little horn speaks bigger, big, but we have a more excellent way in the kingdom of Christ, and we have hope. See, we have peace, you and I, right now, this moment, 
Even if we don't feel it, we have peace because the world is really in God's hands. You may say, well, of course, Brad, I believe that. that I'm not trying to say things that are merely cliché. And just because it sounds cliche doesn't mean it's any less true. The world really is in God's hands. But it's easy to look at current events in despair, isn't it? Do you ever find yourself looking at what's going on in our world, maybe what's going on in your own life, and you kind of despair a little bit? Why is this happening to me? Why are Afghan mothers having to throw their toddlers over barbed wire fence into the hands of American GIs in a reign of terror? Why are people in China who are simply trying to gather and sing being abused and evicted? Why are people in other places of the world being hunted down and and harmed? There's so much hurt and brokenness in our world. Why? Because there's a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong, and it has great iron teeth, and it devours, and it breaks into pieces, and it stamps out what's left with its feet. That's a real power, really at work. And we live, we live in the face of that. The history of humanity tells the story again and again and again and again. So what are we to do? Where are we to go? What, what will we do? Well, Scripture reminds us in multiple places, we just read in Psalm 2, that we're not alone. God is in control. God is leading the charge. That he laughs in derision, is that what it says? Then he laughs and holds them in derision. That he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Of course, we're reading a messianic psalm. We're reading something that's so hope-filled in the face of brokenness and despair. So there's no time Presently, in the past, or in the future where God isn't reigning, God is sovereign over every last detail, which means that he completely controls what comes to pass. Kingdoms come and kingdoms will go. But the word of the Lord stands forever. We remain hopeful even in pain because we have the presence of God as our strong tower and our refuge. And so as we watch the nations rage... Let us love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and our neighbor as ourself. Let us continue to labor on under the banner of Christ, knowing that he is our only hope. And let us continue to stand in the face of evil, because that's our calling. And when we fail to do any one of those things, or all, th- all four of them, let us come to the Lord in repentance, who says, Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Please pray with me. Father, thank you this morning for your word. The visions are fantastical. And we look at them sometimes and perhaps scratch our head and ask what more could be said or what less could be said. Father, I'm thankful for the realistic um, understanding, the real understanding, that you're in control of all things, that you are the shepherd over history. Help us to trust you in that. Help us to come to you in trust and hope and peace. And help us to live under your banner, hope-filled, peace-filled, joy-filled, even as we lament, even as we weep, even as we walk in turmoil, that we do so with the hope of the gospel. It's through Christ we pray. Amen.